You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Hello, good morning. Thank you, Joel, and thank you to the elders. If you guys didn't know, we have a really phenomenal group of elders here at Trinity. So... Let me get to my notes, otherwise this is going to be pointless. Okay, so as you may have noticed, I am a woman, and uh, women tend to be natural connectors, so I'm going to connect with you now to show you a picture of uh, my five favorite people in the whole world. This is my family, my husband Greg and our oldest Grace, then Caleb, Jonathan squished in the middle there, and then Titus up front. So today's question, doesn't Christianity denigrate women? In preparing for today, I am well aware that this topic is a difficult one. It has certainly been an emotional one for me to wade through in preparing for today as a woman. It is also very vast. There are books upon books that have been written about the issues that come up with this question. And obviously today, I'm not going to be addressing all of the issues. My point is very simple. I just want to answer this question. Doesn't Christianity denigrate women? Why or why not? And as Joel mentioned, the order of our service is going to be a little different. So I'm going to, I'm going to follow the creation, uh, the fall, destruction, you know, of, of entrance of sin, um, redemption in Jesus Christ, and new creation pattern as I teach. Uh, there is a number, as you, if you've been here before during the service, you know there's a number where you can text in your questions throughout the service. Please use that number um, at any point, and we'll have a separate Q&A time from 12 to 1 following the service to dive deeper into some of these issues. All right. Oh, and just a heads up to you parents. Uh, we're going to touch on a couple sensitive topics today. Nothing explicit, but we just wanted you to be aware if you have children sitting with you. All right, let's pray as we get started. Oh, Father God, we just thank you for this morning, for this opportunity. Holy Spirit, I can do nothing without you. And so we just ask for you to come and work in and through me and in my heart and in our hearts to know you better to understand you, you and your view of women. And I pray, Jesus, that you would be glorified today. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so does Christianity denigrate women? Doesn't Christianity denigrate women? I looked up the definition of denigrate, and it means to disparage, and that means to regard or represent as being of little worth. So to answer this, first we need to go back to the beginning, uh, which Pastor Joel covered last week regarding creation, I'm sorry, regarding science. So we're going to go back again to creation, and this time we're going to focus in on the creation of man and woman. So we're going to start here in Genesis 1, uh, verses 26 and 27. God has just made everything except man and woman. So he says, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image after our likeness, 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man, you could say mankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we see God at work. God said, let us make mankind in our own image. So point number one to to find here in this section is that man and woman are both made in the image of God, and man and woman were both given this creation mandate from God saying, have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds and everything I've made. That was given to both man and woman. Okay, And they were made in his image, and that means they were made to look like God, right? It's more than just appearance, though. They were meant to resemble God in their character, in their speech, in their actions, in their reason, so they could have a relationship of fellowship and worship with God and with each other. And then they were meant to bear fruit. They were meant to, to create more image bearers to fill the world right, with the glory and the goodness of God and to have dominion over it all. Now, Genesis 2 zooms in a little bit more closely to the actual creation of man and woman, and in particular, the creation of woman. So Eve, as you know, was the final thing, person, thing, creation of God. Eve was the final creation of God. So God had just created Adam, and he gave Adam instructions about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then, Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There is so much here, sermon upon sermon. But the next point to consider is verse 18, right at the beginning. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will, make a help, I will make him a helper, fit for him. Now, up to this point, God has said everything he's made is good, right? Now, he notices something isn't good, even though no sin has entered the picture yet. And what isn't good? That the man would be alone. He needs a helper, right? And so this is kind of crazy to me, but God somehow performs the first uh, surgery with the first anesthetic and puts Adam to sleep and creates woman from man, and then he brings her to Adam. And how glorious would that have been, right? Um, Having this fully naked and no shame, 
And apparently, Eve is so stunning to Adam that when he sees her, he bursts into a song, right? After the parade of animals, he sees Eve, and he, he just, he's, he's visually enjoying his wife. I think God created man to be very visual, and we see this beautiful representation of Adam enjoying his wife. Now, note God's word for woman, right? I'm going to make a helper fit for him. I think sometimes in this day and age, we can hear the word helper, and we automatically hear it as a demeaning word or a belittled word, like, oh yeah, you're my, you're my helper, but it's not. It's not. And my proof to you is in John 14, 15, and 16, when Jesus is having his final night with his disciples before his crucifixion, he says, um, I'm going to leave. Well, actually, the verse is right here, right? He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. So Jesus here is saying the Holy Spirit's going to come. His, his other name is helper. He's helper. I'm going to make a helper fit for man, right? If our God is triune, and he is, Father, um, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and if they are one, there's no hierarchy in the Trinity. They may have different roles, but it's the same, they have the same worth, right? It's the same with man and woman. They've been, they've been both made in the image of God and then given these different roles. And there doesn't make them make one less than the other. Different roles, same worth. Helper is a glorious role for a woman. Think Holy Spirit when you hear helper. Not that women are men's Holy Spirits. Absolutely not, but we are that vital and indispensable to man and to God's kingdom work. So God creates gender, he creates man and woman in his image. And it was purposeful. He could have created one gender. He could have had us reproduce asexually, like I think sea stars and certain types of worms that I can't pronounce, but he didn't. He didn't. He created man, he created woman, he created marriage. Uh, we're going to touch on a little bit later what the picture of marriage, of Christian marriage, represents. We could, we could stop right here at creation and say, no, Christianity doesn't denigrate women. God makes them equal, right? Equal value before him. But, as we all know, or hopefully most of us know, the story does continue. So Genesis 3, 1 through 7 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, 
and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Again, so much here, but let's just note a few things. Note how the serpent, this is Satan, approaches Eve. We find out later, Adam was with her, right? But he approaches Eve. Now, this is, this is one of the reasons I am so passionate about studying and knowing our Bibles, because the serpent calls into question what God has said, right? He misquotes God. And then what does Eve do? She misquotes God too. She adds to what God has said. And now man and woman both fail miserably. They choose to go their own way instead of their creators. They sin. And from this point on, everything in God's creation breaks. God comes looking for them, Genesis 3.11. He said, he's talking now to Adam. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So Adam and Eve then receive curses for their sin, which every human being has experienced since. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken." For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So from this point on, Adam is cursed in his work, and Eve is cursed in her childbearing and in her relationship with Adam. She will now desire to usurp and overpower her husband's God-given authority, and Adam will need to rule over her. The NLT translates that phrase, and he will dominate you. And so it begins, the battle between the sexes, each desiring to rule over one another. Now, in the middle of this, however, there's also a curse for the serpent. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to read verse 15, because in this curse is also a promise that it's not always going to be this way. So Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you, serpent, Satan, and the woman, And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head. The woman's offspring will bruise Satan's head, and you shall bruise his heel. Just put a pin in that for later. Now, for the sake of our question, let's consider what happens to women after the fall, after sin. Uh, Have women been denigrated ever since? I know it's probably not a spoiler alert to say yes, but... I'm going to say yes, and then let's just go through some examples. We're going to look at examples in history, uh, from the Bible, Christians, and some personal ones. So I want us to see that denigration of women is a human problem. So historical examples. It was a little overwhelming to look through and do a little research on historical examples because there were so many of them. 
Uh, an interesting pattern I noticed was that if I'm searching for historical info on women, like there, there's a pattern in most cultures pre 18th, 19th century, there's not much information written about women because most of the history is written by men, and it's, it's cataloging men's roles and what, what they've done. But I did pick out four in, no ran, in just a, no particular order examples in history. Lots of patriarchal societies. Men know best, right? Women are considered typically in those to be uh, property or a little bit better than property. Uh, Sex-selective abortions. Uh, in sex-selective abortions, which gender are we getting rid of? It's girls, right? It's the girls. Human trafficking. Again, who is primarily trafficked out of the two genders? It's vastly women, not all, but vastly women and girls. Uh, and the, this is kind of an overarching trend I just saw in lots of different ways. Objectification and sexualization of women. And lots and lots of different examples, but uh, polygamy, uh, prostitution, present-day pornography, uh, I got a uh, stat from Recovery Village that said uh, every year the U.S. currently pulls in about $16.9 billion from pornography. To relate that to something else, the NFL pulls in $15.26 billion. That was in 2019. All right, moving on to biblical examples. Again, there are way more than I could tell you but I'm going to pull out just a few. Um, starting in Genesis, it doesn't take too long. Abraham gives his wife to other men out of fear twice. Genesis 12, Genesis 20. So much polygamy. Um, Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon, just to name a few. There's kidnapping and forced marriage, Judges 21. There is rape and incest, if you know Tamar's story. There's murder. One of the most horrific ones I've ever read is in Judges 19. I really like what Rachel, Rebecca, Rebecca McLaughlin says in her book in this chapter, Confronting Christianity About Women. She says that the Bible reports what it does not endorse. And it's true. The Bible doesn't shy away from the ugly. What about Christians and church? Have we ever denigrated women? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, some examples, I'm not going to go into any personal stories here, but ones I have heard of. Toleration and toleration of abusive marriages and domineering male leadership. This is a fun one. Elevating marriage and child rearing as the main goal of a woman's life. We're going to talk about that one a little bit later. Lack of discipleship of women. Lack of clarity of women's roles in the church. And apathy toward hurting women and their stories. Separation of the genders. What do I mean by that one? I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this one. Uh, has anybody ever been to a church or a community group where the men are over here and the women are over here and you don't talk to each other very much? You don't interact with each other very much? I have. Um, now, this is a tricky one because I understand and acknowledge there do need to be proper boundaries in our mixed-gender relationships. 
And what those look like is a lot longer conversation than what we have time for this morning, but we do need to have that conversation. And I have personally seen with friends of mine the devastation that comes to so many lives when a man and a woman have an affair or when there's an illicit sexual relationship between a, uh, even a single man and a single woman. However, if the answer to that damage is keep your distance from women, they're dangerous, or if it's from the woman, keep your distance from men, they're dangerous, what, are, what, what do we believe? What are we communicating? We believe the problem could be with the woman's gender or with the man's gender. We're seeing our, our sisters or our brothers through primarily a sexual lens, and in doing so, we have a really shriveled view of what that person's identity is in Christ and, and of what our relationships as brothers and sisters are meant to look like. Right? The issue isn't our gender. The issue is our hearts. So men, if you're struggling with viewing your sisters through a sexual lens primarily, that's a heart issue. It's not the woman's issue. And women, if we're struggling with looking at our brothers through a primarily sexual lens, that isn't their, their issue. It's, it's our issue. It's a heart issue. The enemy does take ground in adultery and the breaking apart of families and of a marriage. And yes, and he also takes ground in our fear and our disconnectedness and our separateness from each other. If we go back to the garden, God made man and woman to work and fill creation and subdue it and rule over it for its flourishing. It isn't good for man to be alone. It isn't good for woman to be alone. We need each other to further the kingdom of God. All right, last example, women's personal examples. I obviously don't have a bullet point list for this because every woman has her own story. I guarantee you, every woman has her own story. Uh, some are worse than others. I have my own. I'm not going to go into any detail about it here, but I did grow up. I think it's been part of my life almost as early as I can remember. I, I grew up believing that that objectification and sexualization of women was normal. It was just part of culture, part of life. Uh, it took me coming to know Jesus and spending years with him and then developing some really sweet relationships with some brothers in Christ before I could start to see the poison that I thought was just normal. And I began to understand how much Jesus actually values women and how much he valued me personally. There is an example from a Jackie Hill Perry song, if you've ever heard it, it's called Woman. She raps, I can't rap, but I'm going to read the quote to you. Uh, she says, I was astounded when I found that I was of value. And I think a lot of women can relate to that. I can relate to that. So, have women been denigrated? Have they been regarded or represented as being of little worth? Yes. Yes. Uh, band, at this point, I'm going to invite you to come back up. So we're going to pause now and just take a few minutes to, to grieve that brokenness now. Can we, can we just keep singing? <laughs> Let's just do that. Oh, thank you guys so much. All right. 
So we've talked about the bad news. Let's look at the good news. Let's look at the object of our Christian faith, Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection, and what that means for women. So Jesus enters the scene in a very patriarchal Jewish culture. How he treated women was shocking in his day and time. And we probably in our egalitarian culture don't understand how truly shocking it was. So um, I found an article uh, from Christianity Today called Jesus and Women by Evelyn and Frank Stagg, and they say this. It might help us understand. Jesus included women where Jewish piety largely excluded them. Women were excluded from participation in synagogue worship, restricted to a spectator role, and forbidden to enter the temple beyond the court of the women. A woman was not able to touch the scriptures, lest she defile them. A man was not to talk much with a woman, even his wife. Talk with a woman in public was yet more restrictive. With that in mind, we're going to zoom over a few examples listed in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is not an exhaustive list. It's just some highlights for us, okay? First one, Jesus had women disciples sitting at his feet and following him throughout his ministry. Jewish rabbis didn't have female disciples, period. Jesus did. They were learning from him. Jesus also revealed himself as the Messiah to a Samaritan woman in public. This one I also pulled from another resource to help us understand how astounding this was at the time. From New Manners and Customs of the Bible, James Freeman says this, The disciples' astonishment was not only because of the non-intercourse of the Jews and the Samaritans, Culturally, they didn't talk to each other, but also because it was unusual for a Jewish teacher to converse with a woman in a public place. Women were not to be saluted or spoken to in the street, and they were not to be instructed in the law. He not only sees her, he speaks to her, and then he reveals, I'm the Messiah, and gives her living water, and she receives salvation and goes and witnesses to her entire village about Jesus. Jesus healed so many women, some of them including a widow's son, a woman bleeding for 12 years, and he raised a little girl from the dead, just to name a few. There is an interesting one about a woman caught in adultery. So the religious leaders of the day are trying to trap Jesus by bringing him a woman caught in adultery. Interestingly enough, only bringing the woman. Where's the man? Takes two to tango, doesn't it? So when, he, when they ask him to deal judgment on her, which would have been stoning, right, Jesus reminds these men that they are also sinful. He doesn't absolve the man and put the blame on the woman alone, which is what the religious leaders wanted him to do. He gives her mercy and tells her to go and sin no more. We know that Jesus had close women friends. We know of a few. We know Mary. We know Martha. I think Mary Magdalene was in there as well. A few other women are named in Scripture. There is an example when Jesus is dining at a religious leader's home called the Pharisees, and I'm sure he's surrounded by other Pharisees. A very clearly sinful woman enters the house, 
And she goes to Jesus, and she begins weeping. And she's, her tears are falling on Jesus' feet, and she, she dries them with her hair, right? And Jesus honors her as the example of faith and love instead of these Pharisees he's surrounded by. Uh, there's a woman as well who anoints Jesus prior to his death uh, and burial. She used that really expensive ointment. I think it was worth 300 denarii, which would have been almost a year's worth of uh, wages for a day laborer at the time, and she anoints Jesus with it. And of course, every, all the disciples around her are shocked, going, how dare you waste this ointment? Uh, could have been given to the poor. And Jesus honors her and dignifies her and says that um, she did what was honoring to me. And as you know, if you've heard the story of Jesus' crucifixion, it's women who stayed with him throughout his crucifixion. They were watching from afar when all of his male disciples had fled, although we do know John came back. So we're going to pause here for a moment at this Jesus' death and resurrection because this is the moment of all moments. The whole Old Testament, since Genesis 3, when that, that preview of someone, some offspring is going to come from the woman to crush Satan's head, right? To bruise his head. Every, some, they've been waiting for their Messiah, somebody who would reverse these curses. And here it happens. And through Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, Jesus does it. He deals Satan's death blow. He steps in front of God's wrath that was coming rightly toward every single one of us in humanity, and he absorbs it. Jesus absorbed it and satisfied God's wrath, just like we sang a few minutes ago. And now specifically for us, in every way you have been sinned against, and I understand for some of you it has been cruel and it has been abominable. But in every way you've been sinned against, Jesus bore your wounds. And he also bore the sins of others against you. And he bore your sin. So many passages we could have picked to go to this, but I chose Isaiah. 53, 4 through 5. Isaiah is interesting because it was written 800 plus years before Jesus was even born. But it's so clear about what he accomplished. It's prophecy, right? Prophecy fulfilled. So it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus does it. He reverses the curse. He pays our debt. He takes on our suffering. He does it all so we would be free from the sins done to us and the sins we have done. From his death, he offers us new life. Right From what seems like defeat, Jesus wins victory. And Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. It's the gift that changes our lives forever should we just choose to accept it. So Jesus dies. He's buried. 
Women go to the tomb on Sunday morning to anoint his body, and he's not there. They meet angels who say he's risen again. Now, no one's seen him yet. To whom did Jesus reveal himself? Who is going to be his first witness to the greatest event in the history of the world, the death blow to Satan and sin and death, the news that would change everything in human history? Who was it? It was a woman. It was a woman. That was intentional on God's part. In a time when a woman's testimony wouldn't even be valid in a court of law, Jesus reveals himself to Mary. I have tried to get through this section without crying every time I practiced it, and I haven't done it. He chooses Mary, and then he tells her to do what? He says, go and tell my brothers that I'm alive, and I'm going to meet them in Galilee. He goes and tells a woman to go speak God's words to his brothers. It's beautiful. Jesus doesn't denigrate women. He upholds them, and he honors them as image bearers alongside men. Now, what about Christianity? What about the faith in Jesus itself? Doesn't it denigrate women? I thought of you know, three categories where we, we can tend to think it denigrates women. The first one would be, the first example is marriage. Isn't Christian marriage denigrating to women, right? The man is the head and the woman is to submit. What is that all about? Now, it is true, as we've talked about sin, that sin has affected every part of God's creation, including marriage, right? Christian marriages. In the name of Christ, men have dominated over their wives, sometimes even abused them physically, spiritually, emotionally, in the name of being their head. However, that is blatant sin in God's eyes, and it is not what a Christian marriage is meant to be. The true Christian marriage description, I think, is most clearly found in Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33. For the sake of time, we're not going to read all 11 verses, but I summed it up for us in terms of the roles of wives and husbands. So the call here is, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, just like the church submits to Christ and respects them, and respect them. And the call for husbands is, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So you love your wife as you love your own body. You nourish and cherish her just as Christ cherishes cherishes his church. So Paul reveals in this section of Ephesians that the, the purpose, the mystery of marriage, is that it refers to Christ and his church. So marriage is a picture, an image, an example, a visual for us of what the real deal actually is, the real deal being Jesus' relationship with his church, right? So in light of that, the role in a Christian marriage that the husbands are representing Christ in this picture, they are meant to sacrificially love their wives to the point of giving up all for them for her good, for her flourishing. Who wouldn't want a husband like that, right? They're representing Jesus, and the wives are called to take on the role of the church and represent that role as the church submits to Christ and everything. Wives are to submit to their husbands 
and everything. So as Pastor Joel says, with our kingdom goggles on, the whole purpose of marriage as a Christian takes on an entire different meaning than what the world would probably tell us, right? Now, so one of those things is that women and men are given different roles in marriage, but does that mean they have different value? No. Same thing with the Trinity, right? Different roles, same worth, same value. Now, just for us women who, anybody tend to twerk a little bit when you hear the word submit? You know, it just, just kind of rubs you the wrong way. Uh, I can relate. And do you know why we twerk? Remember Genesis 3 and our curse? We're still affected by that, right? We want to usurp their authority. We think we know best. There's so many jokes in society about how women know best. Have you noticed this? You know? Um, now, submission is not a dirty word. It is a beautiful word. It's beautiful. You know why? Because Jesus does it. Jesus submits. First, we see an example of how he submits as a child to sinful parents. I don't know how that worked. Son of God submitting to sinful parents. And then, as uh, he's facing his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know Jesus prays, God, is there any other way? Can we, can we find another way, please, to save all of humanity? Yet, not my will, but yours be done. He submits his will to the Father. Does that make Jesus less than? Is he a lesser member of the Trinity? Not at all. So the same is true for us women who are called, married women, called to submit to their husbands, right? A true Christian marriage honors women. It is also worth pointing out, because this has been misused, this does not mean all women submit to all men. Note the context. It's a Christian, it's marriage, okay? Just have to put that out there. Now, the next example was singleness, and we're going back to that point of how we can tend to elevate marriage and child-rearing as the main goal of a woman's life, right? While marriage is a metaphor of Jesus and his church, and motherhood is an honorable job, I am doing it myself, neither are the final or ultimate goal for a woman. The ultimate goal for a woman is to know and love her risen Savior and live her life accordingly for him right? There's a lot of us Christians to grow in this area. We may not along with that statement I just made, and then, you know, this week we talked to our single friend and asked if she's met somebody yet. Or we pester a newly married couple with impudent questions about when they're going to start a family, when it's none of our business. So Paul helps write our view here as well with singles in 1 Corinthians 7. He values the single life. Singles are, in his words, happier. Get that? Happier and are more able to be devoted to the Lord's work than someone who is married. Why don't we quote verse 38 of 1 Corinthians 7 more? It says, so the person who marries his fiancée does well, and the person who doesn't marry does even better. <laughs> Food for thought. All right, and then what about in the church? Isn't having different roles for men and women in the church denigrating to women? What about that? Women being elders, that whole question. This brings up what Joel touched on at the beginning of our service, and while I'm not able to do it justice here, I do want to point out that the issue of women's roles in the church is an open-handed secondary issue of importance. 
as it relates to the gospel. Meaning, there are a wide range of Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians who will differ on what women's roles in the church should look like, and they will argue biblically for their position. It's a spectrum. I have a picture of this spectrum. It's a spectrum of belief and conviction. Egalitarian, complementarian, you see the outskirts of patriarchal versus a feminist. Um, this picture is from Glenwood Church of Christ in Texas. Now, personally, I've been part of churches who are on different points of this spectrum. And thankfully, by God's grace, I've been able to submit to my church leaders in all of those interpretations because while, yes, we all probably hold a conviction about men and women's roles in the church, we also believe it's not something worth dividing over. It's not. We want to strive for unity in Christ and not quarrel over secondary opinions. Now, as we close our time, we are going to move into the new creation. Uh, We're looking ahead now to what is coming. So the Christian faith is based on our crucified, risen Savior, Jesus Christ, who has won victory over sin and death and Satan and all the brokenness in the world, including the denigration of women. Now, does Christianity denigrate women? I would say on the contrary. Christianity does not denigrate women, nor does our Christ. In a world broken by sin, where women have been denigrated, he lifts women up, and he honors them as image bearers of God alongside men. He doesn't, no, Jesus doesn't elevate one over the other like we tend to do in culture. They're both image bearers of God. Have Christians been part of the problem of sin against women? Absolutely. Yes, we still struggle with our sin nature. Um, And at the same time, we have been redeemed by Jesus' blood, and we have his spirit living in us, which gives us power to live a new way. So theologians call this this time we're living in, right, between the already and the not yet. We've been redeemed, and yet we're still experiencing this spiritual battle inside us until Jesus comes again to rule and reign and establish this whole new, just remaking everything new again. So if Romans 8 is true, which it is, saying that the Spirit of God, the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in us, right? He gives us the power to actually live differently now. And in fact, there are, if you look into it, there are some bright lights throughout history uh, considering women and, and how Christians have sought to uphold them. Christians are often the ones who fight to bring value to women who have been abused, In the early church, Christians were the ones adopting unwanted castaway babies. Uh, I think of REST, a local organization that helps women and girls escape the sex sex trade. Uh, Some Christians are fighting hard against the hypersexualization of our culture and the damage done by pornography. So wherever we see that, whenever we see Christians working to build up women who have been torn down, you are seeing God at work through them reinstilling that value he gave women back at creation, right? You're seeing the Spirit of God again do his work, bringing light out of darkness and bringing life out of death. So yes, while our gender is part of us, it's part of how we're shaped, it's part of how we see the world, it does not ultimately define who we are. Our ultimate value is that we, both men and women, are the reflection of God to the world. 
We are his image bearers, made in his likeness. And we need both men and women in the church using their giftings to be God's witness and to build up the body of Christ. Men have their blind spots and their strengths. Women have their blind spots and their strengths. We need each other. And oh, just, just, uh, just bear with me for a moment and think about the day when all this sin will be gone. Imagine fully redeemed and restored relationships between men and women, between us and our risen Savior. Imagine finally seeing him face to face. Imagine the intimacy we're going to have with him and with each other. You see, in Jesus' fully redeemed and restored creation, marriage and sex are gone. If you don't believe me, check out Matthew 22, 29 through 30. It was just a picture It was just a preview of the real thing, and we will have the real thing. Intimacy with Jesus is going to endure. Brother and sister intimacy in Christ is going to endure, right? Jesus will have his bride, and the bride will have her groom, and we're going to rejoice. So since that day is coming, let's pray and strive for the unity between brothers and sisters that Jesus prayed for in John 17. Let's seek to be a place where the world sees the presence of God's Spirit and how women relate to men and how men relate to women. I have three community group, well, three and a half, three community, you can count, it's up to you, community group questions for your discussion this week. Um, It is up to you whether you want to meet together as all genders or separately. I think it could be good either way. So... Number one, doesn't Christianity denigrate women? Why or why not? How have you related and how do you currently relate with the opposite gender? What are some ways you can grow in how you relate to the opposite gender? Let's pray. Jesus, we just first want to acknowledge and thank you that you have done what none of us could that you have stepped in front of the wrath coming toward us and you have absorbed it. And through that, through your death, you've given us life. And we thank you that you are reigning victoriously, sitting next to God, the Father, and that one day you're coming again to make it right again. And we, we need your help, Holy Spirit. Would you bring us unity as brothers and sisters in Christ? Would you... Unite us and help us love each other the way that you have loved us. I pray for healing for those who are wounded. I pray for restoration and wholeness and that your spirit would be at work in us, Lord Jesus, doing your work until you come. We thank you and we praise you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.